Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm in McGarry with me as always, the uh, irredoubtable Duncan Castles. We're going to be talking uh, lots about Manchester United, Tottenham Hotspur, amongst other subjects for you. We're going to start at Old Trafford, where that saga of Manchester United's absent or invisible director of football has uh, once again become an issue. It's the transfer window's understanding that Manchester United have re-begun the process of looking for a suitable candidate or candidates for the role to be uh, director of football at Manchester United. This follows three at least failed attempts to recruit into that particular position in the past. At the moment, we know that Ed Woodward, the executive vice chairman, and Matt Judge, who's head of corporate development, are the ones who make most, if not all, of recommendations and decisions regarding the final signing of players based on scouting reports and data analysis. However, there have been, as we said, attempts to recruit someone who is more specialised to that role. Um, And we understand that the idea for United or the ideal is that that position be filled after the new year, so therefore in 2021, in time to organise and coordinate Manchester United spending and recruitment for the window which opens in the summer next year. Duncan, this is a a bit of a subject which we've talked a lot about in the past. Uh, There have been so many different uh, candidates mentioned, as well as the fact that United have failed even um, in most cases to interview some very, very good candidates. Are we going to tell Manchester United fans in the pod that this is going to be any different? (laughs) It it is extremely hard to tell because, as you said, this has been something that Manchester United have been briefing about as a solution for this, you know, very unsuccessful period that Manchester United have have entered themselves into under his executive vice chairmanship. You know, they're they're on their longest run without a trophy, um, missing the Champions League on, you know, basically an alternate years. He keeps briefing that, the solution or one part of the solution is to add a director of football to the process. And then he goes and does interviews talking about how brilliant the recruitment process is, how well they've bought players, how good their data analysts are, how impressive their scouting system. So he wavers from one side to another and ends up doing the transfers himself as the senior person um, executive in the club with Matt Judge um, doing a lot of the face-to-face conversations with agents, um, essentially acting as a conduit between players, player agents, Woodward, and then Joe Glazer, who um, has a, as he does in all areas or virtually all areas of the club's business, has has the power to veto spending and uh, and decide how much will be spent uh, in not just on players but on on elements that you you wouldn't imagine um 
an owner of a of a club of Manchester United scale to to be worried about things like um, office furniture at the, at the training ground or things that the Glazers have to have referred back to them before decisions have been made on spend or not to spend. So it is a familiar story, but um, on top of your information that uh, this is the the timeline they're looking at to get someone in place for next summer's window. I can tell you that the noise um, amongst senior uh, recruitment professionals in football is that Manchester United are looking again. Um, There have been contacts made by various agents to top directors of football to ask if they can uh, represent them and push their case to United. So these agents are aware that this is going on and, and they want to get involved in the process. I think you've seen in the past week some of the directors of football, more prominent directors of football in, in European football linked with this job. So Marcel Brands, um, recently uh, a story came out that he was a strong candidate for the role. Um, might not be a coincidence that Brands has less than a year left on his contract at Everton um, and, well, from his perspective, would be in a position where he is free to leave at the end of the season um, without compensation. But also it might not be a bad uh, situation for him, even if he wants to stay at Everton um, for uh, any interest from Manchester United to become public knowledge so he can use it in negotiations with Everton to improve his position after what was one of the strongest transfer windows Everton have had um, under their, their current ownership last summer. There are a number of other strong candidates out there. There are a number of individuals who would be interested in being interviewed for the role. We've talked in the past about Lewis Campus, who has that um, tremendous record at Monaco and then Lille of identifying younger talents in European football, putting them in winning teams, very successful teams, and seeing their, their values skyrocket. That is a set of characteristics which is attractive to top clubs in Europe for obvious reasons. Um, He has been recommended to Manchester United before. He would have been Jose Mourinho's choice for the role when Woodward first started talking about the idea of appointing one, but um, was not properly interviewed at that time. Um, And so there'd be a question mark as to whether United are prepared to, to talk to an individual like that on this occasion, but he is certainly available having stopped working for Leo. Um, he's still under contract with Leo, but is in the process of exiting from that contract. And as we um, exclusively reported on the podcast several months ago, after the last transfer window, he stopped um, working and has not been present day to day, spending his time in Portugal. So there you have a guy with a an incredible record, um, recent record, who in principle would fit well and you would expect would radically improve what has been a pretty ramshackle recruitment process at Manchester United for years now. But um, I think this is going to be the real test of how serious United are here. Um, one, are they actually going to appoint? And two, are they actually going to present a role to these candidates which is attractive to them, where they have enough power um, and authority to come into the job and improve things and see the team succeed 
or are they going to be stuck in a position which could be quite similar to Matt Judge's where they end up talking to the agents and doing the groundwork on deals but don't have the authority to put those transfers into action and therefore are dependent on Ed Woodward and Joe Glazer for final decision making. Now, there's no question that an experienced director of football with proper contacts and better knowledge of footballers than Judge, who in his former role was a banker, um, like Glazer, like Woodward, has never had a senior role in a football club before his time at Manchester United. There's no doubt that these experienced individuals would do and improve on the job, even with a, a limited remit as to what they would be allowed um, to do in transfers. But for those individuals of, of status, the really good directors of football, they don't want to be associated with failure. And um, they are aware that you can go into a club and be made director of football, be made the, the name at the head of transfers in tandem with the manager. And if you don't have the authority to change things in the way you want change, then this isn't just purchases in, it's sales out, which is an area United have really struggled with. Um, then you get tarnished with the failure and you become the fall guy for decisions that are ultimately out of your control. So I think that although we're hearing this from United and although the world of football is hearing this and looking at the possibility of the job, there's still big questions as to how much authority will be handed over by Woodward and by the Glazers. Well, Duncan, I've dealt extensively with directors of football at various clubs and heads of recruitment uh, and football operations, depending on which title they have over the last uh, yeah, few years. And it, I can tell quite quickly how much of a mandate that person has with regards to completing any deal. Um, you know, because the ones who do have the mandate will talk figures with you. Uh, they'll talk about um, all the different details of what the contract might entail. They'll involve the people at the club who also need to be in the loop as well, including informing the likes of chief executive and chairman and financial director of the club of what's going on. And they'll copy you in that email um, to make sure that everyone's on the same page on a transfer. And then you've got the other ones who don't have a mandate and simply talk in general terms about the possibility of signing said particular player. And then we'll tell you, uh, okay, thanks very much for meeting. Uh, we'll get back to you. I. I need to go and discuss this with lots of other people who will actually make the decision. And in terms of Manchester United, uh, what we know for sure is that they wanted Sir Alex Ferguson gone. They made a deal with Ferguson to retire as long as he could handpick his successor. And the reason they did that was because the Glazers wanted more influence in the football department, i.e. they wanted a say in who the club signed, uh, who they sold, who the manager was going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Now that's been going on for seven years. And I really don't see why the Glazers, Ed Woodward, Matt Judge, are necessarily going to be willing to relinquish all of that power to one other person who they appoint as director of football. I think it's more likely this will be the transfer committee model that Liverpool famously have and that the director of football will be involved in discussions about potential recruits, but won't have the final say. And as you have rightly pointed out, that's something that the really top guys in their profession 
do not want to be associated with because ultimately their fate is out of their hands. But like a manager who accepts players that he didn't ask for or ask to sign, but then feels duty bound to play them because they cost 50, 60 million pounds, they fail and he's the one who loses his job. So yeah, it's um, it's a difficult one. And as I said, it's, it's a saga that's been going on and on and one which I think will still uh, have some twists and turns before it is resolved. Yeah, and you talk about experienced individuals not wanting the job. When Manchester United were talking to former players last season um, to put them in to a kind of director of football role or into that recruitment process to be a front for the club, some of those individuals were asking questions, as you reported at the time, about how, how much authority do I actually have? If I think we should be signing this player, can I make it happen? And they weren't getting the answers that convinced them that it would be a clever idea for them to move into the role. Um, you know, to tell a story that we've told before in this podcast about Matt Judge, I mean, he, in many ways, it's not a criticism of him because he is not qualified for this role. If you appoint someone who whose past experience is in corporate and in banking to do football transfers, they are not going to have the knowledge and the and the uh, the skills um, to have the same conversations that people who've spent 20, 30 years in that particular role who've, who've lived a life in the game are going to have. Um, United's argument is that Judge was involved in very high uh, financial deals in his previous role. Therefore, he's, he's good at handling money. And I'm sure that's correct. But these are different. It's not just about being able to handle large figures. It's, it's about being able to handle large characters and get things done quickly in a competitive market. People will tell you that Manchester United are very slow to act in the transfer market. The deals take a long time to happen. And we see the evidence of that in often um, a summer's set of transfers all happening on the la- in the last week or even in the last day. And famously, some of them falling through on the last day with United. You also, this is a story we told you before, agents will say that they'll sit in the room with Matt Judge discussing a particular deal, discussing um, what the player's requirements are, what the, the salary demands would be, um, other aspects of, of how um, the player's side want uh, the, the deal to progress. And Judge will sit and write notes down, uh, almost you know, taking every, every word they say down in this conversation, which is completely different from the process they're used to at other clubs, where it is it's more of an organic conversation and uh, they feel that the person they're talking to as the, the front person involved in contracts at a major football club has the authority um, to negotiate properly rather than just take notes and pass them on back to his superiors. I think that has to change. I think the evidence from Manchester United that that is a failing system is clear. That has to change. Let's see if they are actually ready to change it this time. Now, fans of Tottenham Hotspur, lend me your ears because this is a phrase you'll want to hear. Spurs are leading the Premier League. That's something you'll never tire of hearing, I'm sure. However, the question is, can Spurs sustain this title challenge for the whole season? And what does it require 
for them to be able to sustain it. Also, Duncan, the club released its financial statement for the last season and year, and it didn't make for prettier reading, especially for a man like Daniel Levy, who uh, does not like to see his balance sheet so firmly in the red as it was. First of all, though, um, let's talk about what Spurs may require in terms of playing staff uh, to in order to give them the best possible chance of, as I said, keeping up this challenge after the new year because we have a 31-day window in January. We're only 33 days away from that window opening. It's the time when really targets should already have been identified, when initial talks should have taken place with those potential targets. Um, you're a man who knows Josie Mourinho well. Um, what do you think he needs in order to keep this particular challenge up? Well, you, you say Tottenham fans will never tire of being top of the league. You have to remember that Tim Sherwood, their former manager, uh, who was doing an analysis for Premier League television, after and during their 2-0 defeat of Manchester City last weekend, uh, told us that the fans wouldn't like it because of the way uh, Mourinho had the team playing um, and uh, that the, argued that the, the Mourinho and Tottenham were benefiting because the fans weren't in the stadium to express their displeasure about the way they played. <laughs> Uh, can I again. can I just say here I make it a point to always mute my television if Tim Sherwood appears <laughs> upon it. Yeah, it certainly didn't go down very well with the vast majority of Tottenham fans who seem to think um, wonder what Sherwood was talking about, which I, I guess is probably a familiar process for them, given they had to endure his time in charge of the club. Um, but let's talk about what they need to do to stay at the top of the division. And you're right. Um, Mourinho is doing that analysis at the moment. We are in the midst of a of a very important month for them, a very testing month. They've come through that Manchester City game, but they now play Chelsea at the weekend, Arsenal, Liverpool and Leicester in December with various other games intermixed uh, amongst that. So we'll, we'll see how they come out the other end of that. But it, it's it's no secret that Mourinho is very happy with where his squad are, the response he's got from the players um, to the changes he, he's made in their mentality and their tactical system. And, you know, there, there's some quite fundamental changes in there. He's very pleased with the way individuals like Tongue and Dombele have responded to him pushing that record signing for, for Tottenham last season. We got to a point where it looked like um, Mourinho would be happy to let Ndombele leave the club, but he's now integral to the midfield and delivering in midfield the kind of passes that uh, that put Tottenham ahead against Manchester City. But there's at least one area where he would like to improve in this window if he can persuade Daniel Levy to do so. And those financial results are important here that you mentioned. He knows that the, the club's finances are in a bad way and he is not asking for big, um, super expensive signings because he realises that's not going to happen. But there is a sense that if they are going to have the full range of ability to play against opponents they have to play against in the Premier League and in the Europa League, he still needs to improve in central defence. Um, the two things he would like are a left-footed centre-back. Um, Tottenham don't have any left-footers in, in their defence. And uh, 
um, he's aware that that makes it harder to distribute the ball when they're in possession at the back. Um, just having the balance of a left-footed centre back and a, and a right-footed centre back allows the, the ball to be more moved more fluidly. It's something that that Pep Guardiola, for example, always insists on in structuring his teams, and it also helps cover for a attacking left back when he's up the field. It's easier for a left-sided left-footed centre-back to cover when they, the, the full-back get exposed. And obviously they're playing with aggressive full-backs at present. The other thing he would like in there is speed. So um, Toby Alderweireld, who's currently injured, and um, Dyer are not blessed with pace and that limits the way he can play. Uh, particularly against the best teams. And we've seen this with Mourinho in the past. Um, he's, he's reluctant to go and play a high attacking line against strong opponents when he doesn't have quick defenders. And various arguments at Chelsea, for example, over the need to bring a quick defender in to replace John Terry um, to sort out their defence, which, which resulted in conflict with the board. Seen at other clubs, um, he'd like to have that option there. The fastest defender he's got is Davinson Sanchez. There's an issue with Davinson Sanchez is that physically he's good and the pace is excellent. But I think anyone who's watched him play will see that he is somewhat error prone. And um, and we all know that Mourinho does not appreciate errors in any positions in the field, but particularly in defensive positions. So that's what he's looking for at the moment. And that's what he is hoping that Tottenham will say we have this opportunity um, in, a, in an open Premier League um, where several of the big teams are really struggling and even Liverpool, who are level with them on points at present, have massive um, problems in their personnel that maybe it's just worth throwing a bit more money in after quite a big summer for them and an even bigger summer the previous uh, a year under Maurizio Pochettino, something which is detailed in the in the financial accounts, and go and uh, spend again and chase that title. It would certainly be uh, an incredible achievement, and I suspect knowing Jose Mourinho, it may even surpass his second place at Manchester United, <laughs> which he said was the best achievement of his career if he won the title with Tottenham. That's for sure. Um, the financial results. Uh, Duncan, as I said, they didn't look good. There was one thing which really stood out for me, and that was that their projected income from stadium at match days uh, would have in normal circumstances, i.e. full stadia for home games, have outstripped by some way a Premier League record for one season, which is incredible, but shows you the worth and value of building that incredible new ground, uh, which they're still looking for in naming rights for. Um, but also there was record losses. So, I mean, the, the, the borrowing is fairly low on interest, but high in numbers. Spurs seem to be one of the clubs who have effectively put themselves into a more difficult position in terms of paying that money back because they have lost out on the liquidity of match day revenue. Is Mourinho going to get the funds to spend to try and take them to that holy grail of a Premier League title in January? has to convince Daniel Levy to do it. As you say, that the numbers are very poor and Levy doesn't hide that. I mean, he talks about 
uh, their estimate for the current financial year should the stadium remain closed to fans for the entirety of it to be in excess of £150 million um, of lost revenue, which is uh, underlines what you're saying about the, the revenue increases they've managed to achieve by building that stadium, £1.2 billion stadium. But also in the financial accounts, they have their gross debt going up to £831 million, one of the highest figures in Europe. It's not dangerous because they have um, reduced the, the interest rate on their, their loans, so they can pay that back over a number of years. And they went into that financial year with a massive amount of headroom. And one of the interesting figures in, in those accounts is that even though they took on a lot of players at the start of that fin financial year in the summer of uh, 2019, Levy managed to keep the wage bill to a just a 1% rise to £181 million, um, with the other big six clubs all having at least £100 million more of wage spend per year than Tottenham. Um, but yeah, they went from £87 million profit to £68 million loss. That's a swing of £155 million. Revenue dropped 15%. Um, and the first loss they've suffered since 2012. So I, I'm fascinated to see how Levy responds, actually, because you, you look at Tottenham's finances and he, he's achieved a miracle of um, keeping them in regular profit, keeping the wages down, keeping them in the Champions League year after year. And obviously this year they have no Champions League revenue, so that's going to hurt them even more on, on broadcast income. But staying in the Champions League almost every season during that time and, and making them competitive and making them one of the strongest clubs in, in European football. But he's done that by being prudent for the most part. Um, the, biggest, the biggest gamble, the biggest investment is the stadium. Um, but that stadium was, you, you see the financial sense in it from these figures because when we're talking match day revenue, we're talking revenue from Premier League games and that outstripping other clubs for that season apart from Arsenal um, would have been more un under the projection you mentioned without the, uh, without the COVID interference. But they also make the additional money from, for example, NFL games, um, for, from stadium tours, from concerts that they can hold there because it's designed in, with a, an artificial pitch underneath the, the main pitch so they can, they can hold more events there without damaging the turf. It, it, it's designed to turn Tottenham into a club that can outstrip most of their opponents financially on revenue they raise if they have a good team on the field and designed to make them saleable as an asset. So the ultimate goal of Joe Lewis, Daniel Levy, is to, to sell Tottenham and, and they've built a ready-made club with the best stadium in the country, with a superb training ground and, and a very good squad and a, and a good balance sheet and fundamentals when you take COVID out of the picture, but they have been kicked in the, the proverbial balls by COVID because they built to take advantage of having feet through the door and therefore got hurt more by not being able to take put feet through the door than any other club in England. I also wonder, Duncan, if it hurt Daniel Levy to have dropped into second place in terms of the highest paid directors in the Premier League because he's been number one, even though Spurs have not been number one for many years now. And Edward Wood has retaken uh, place uh, at position over 
Daniel as the highest earner, with an excessive salary of excess of three point one million pounds. And Daniel's just underneath three million now, having pocketed seven million because of his four point one million stadium completion bonus this time last year. So uh, we shall see about Tottenham Hotspur uh, regarding um, their challenge, and uh, it will be interesting if uh, they do invest in January, given the current climate. But then again, it's a roll of the dice, Duncan. You've got to speculate to accumulate, and if they're still up there. At the time when, you know, traditionally the uh, the Christmas and holiday period fixtures separate the cockerels from the hens, then, you know, maybe it's, it's time to just take another wee gamble. Well, two, two things that should hurt the Glazers more, that Ed Woodward is a higher paid chief executive than Daniel Levy um, on a pure performance basis. Uh, and the other thing is when Mourinho took this job, um, part of the idea that Daniel Levy and him hatched was he would come in and make that final step to get them to win a Premier League title. Um, that was premised on significant spending to the squad. Um, they weren't able to do exactly what they wanted to do because of COVID, but they did a lot. Um, and Mourinho is more or less happy with the squad. He's very certainly very grateful for what he got at a time when it looked like he wasn't going to get very much. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It is fascinating to see whether Levy and Lewis are ready to to go for it under a manager that they specifically brought in to go for it, given that the circumstances have changed. They do have a good excuse to say, well, actually what we need to do is consolidate, get back into the Champions League. It's going well and we build from there. They also have that opportunity, which wouldn't you wouldn't have seen for coming for several years now given the way Manchester City and Liverpool have been Well from the top of the Premier League to the bottom of the Championship where there have been some intriguing times over the past two weeks having appointed the former Dutch international Philip Koku to the post of head coach uh, he was summarily sacked after a bad run of their results, mostly defeats. And uh, initially, Mel Morris, the chairman and owner of Derby County, put uh, Liam Rossignor, Wayne Rooney, Shea Given, and another coach in charge uh, equally. So that we had uh, a committee, if you like, of four people who were making decisions, although uh, Liam Rossignor was taking and leading training and indeed was in charge of team selection. So he was the de facto head coach. Uh, partly because, of course, Rooney himself is still a main part of the playing staff and has played in every game this season so far. However, on Thursday of this week, after a very uh, morale-sapping defeat at Middlesbrough, uh, a meeting was called uh, between Rooney, Rossini, and the new director of football, one Steve McLaren, um, whose son also happens to be head of recruitment at Pride Park, uh, and it was decided that Rooney would take sole charge of uh, all of the important decisions at the club for the foreseeable future. Derby, of course, are also in the middle of a takeover by a Saudi Arabian businessman and consortium and a cousin of Sheikh Mansour. Uh, that has yet to go through and is believed that Although most of the aspects of the transition of ownership have been settled, there still remains the issue of a 
the possible points deduction for Derby regarding the sale of the stadium to another of Mel Morris's companies and the valuation that that uh, particular deal was placed at. Now, Duncan, I'm going to just put this one factually up there for you. Wayne Rooney um, has been, you know, he obviously had a glittering career as a player. He uh, is England's record all-time goalscorer. And obviously, he comes into the category of Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard, who are also now coaching at uh, Chelsea and Rangers, as we know. Um, however, uh, unlike Lampard and Gerrard, Rooney has only his UFSC licence, which means that he's effectively only qualified to coach an under-12s team down the local park and is quite some way away, maybe a year to 14, 18 months, depending on his uh, his ability to complete 80 hours of coaching in that time. And of course, pass the exams as well, uh, away from his UEFA Pro licence, which is what he needs to be on the touchline and be in charge of Derby County. Whereas you've got Liam Rossignor, who has had his Pro licence now for over two years, completed a year as assistant at Brighton's under-23s and spent last year and part of this season as a full-time assistant to Philip Koku. Where is the common sense in this when you appoint Rooney instead of Rossigna to that lead role? There are a lot of elements here. Wayne Rooney is the, is the name, he is the face. He's the biggest thing about Derby County at present. There were reports that when he came back to English football to play for Derby, that part of his deal with the club was that um, he would have the option to become coach, head coach, when he decided uh, to stop playing or when Derby decided that they needed a change of manager. He has now got Steve McLaren in there alongside, who obviously is someone um, he has a, a long-term relationship with. Um, so that is not going to go against him when, if a decision has to be made over who takes um, authority over the team. He is intelligent about football. I mean, uh, you can read our our, our friend um, Jonathan Norcroft's columns with Rooney in the, the Sunday Times, and they are fascinating. He's a thinker about the game. Um, he does know football very well. So there are elements there where you could... Um, see that he has the credentials to become a manager. But you're right, he doesn't have the training. Certainly, there are aspects of his behaviour as a player which um, would make you wonder how easy he will find it to discipline and and control a dressing room. Um, It does seem a very big risk um, overtaking a fully qualified coach, um, whether that be one you have in-house in, in Liam Rossignor or whether you take, you hire externally. And they're not in a great position from a, from a football perspective in terms of the way they've been playing. Uh, they've won just one game in the championship so far this season. Goal difference of minus 15, six points um, off safety at present and with that potential points penalty that the EFL are trying to have. Uh, placed upon them, they're challenging uh, an independent tribunal's decision not to to punish them over the 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 sale of the ground to one of Mel Morris's companies. So 
it, it does seem extremely risky to to go for an individual like Rooney. What's also interesting are the reports that Rooney's first decision as manager will be not to play himself um, on the basis that he's not playing well enough to get in the team. Now, anyone who saw him against Middlesbrough would probably applaud that decision, to be fair. <laughs> well, if that's correct, if the argument is we make a player who's not good enough to contribute on the pitch anymore manager because we have a contract with him and um, that's where he can best contribute to the team, then maybe um, it's time for Paul Pogba to take over from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because he he's not contributing in the way you'd expect him to for Manchester United and um, he has a big expensive contract. So um, let's shift him to uh, the manager's seat. The logic of it is bizarre. It's certainly, certainly you can say that. Please note, all Manchester United fans, it took somewhere around 40, no, maybe 38 minutes for Duncan to mention Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but he did get it in there. <laughs> I'm sure you're all very, very pleased that we managed to do so. Another manager who's in a bit of trouble, Duncan, uh, in terms of results, is Neil Lennon at Celtic. Uh, a very, very disappointing performance in Prague on Thursday night in Europa League, which saw them exit that competition. Uh, 4-1 defeat. Uh, now I think it's uh, only one win in eight uh, for Lennon in all competitions. Uh, certainly there's been four defeats in there as well. And lots of speculation about his future, but also, and I did find this rather strange, um, the so-called Green Brigade, uh, who occupy a certain part of the stands at Parkhead uh, when indeed fans are allowed in, had written a letter calling for Lennon to be sacked. Um, now, we did discuss this in our Your Questions Answered pod uh, a couple of weeks ago, Duncan, and at the time my information was that the, the board were not, at Celtic were not considering a change of manager at that time. Um, now, the hysteria which is engulfed uh, Scottish football and Glasgow in particular over whether Celtic will overtake the nine in a row record held jointly by them and Rangers uh, in this season if they win a 10th consecutive title seems to be adding to um, the paranoia of Celtic fans uh, about the fact they're living points behind Rangers albeit with games in hand and so this almost panic knee-jerk reaction sacked Neil Lennon because uh, Celtic are not winning football matches and uh, it needs to be changed straight away. Uh, the transfer window's information is that uh, while Celtic still have faith in Neil Lennon to change it round, and as we have said before, uh, Scottish football and the old firm in particular is a very, is a very, very unique culture uh, in that um, Generally speaking, you have to know what the club is about. You have to at least learn very quickly what each club is about if you're going to manage them and what that means to not just the fans, but the community in general, etc. And of course, in this most tense and potentially historic of years, then that's even more important. Uh, we have been told that if Celtic were to make a change, it would be most likely be a former manager or even player who manages to come in because they would understand immediately what's at stake. Um, 
Gordon Strachan is one name that's been mentioned. Obviously, he had a successful spell managing Celtic already. He certainly knows uh, the culture and the club inside out. He's currently working for a television station uh, covering Scottish football. So he's obviously seeing the games. He can see the problems and, and the positives. So it looks like uh, it's, a, it's a kind of um, day-by-day monitoring situation at Celtic. But um, I'd be fascinated, Duncan, to get your point of view because you're not a, a fan of either old firm club and did you come from the so-called new firm. If you were in Peter Lowell and Dermot Desmond's shoes, would you be considering sacking Neil Lennon? They're in a difficult position <laughs> because, as you say, that it's external pressure on them from the supporters. Um, the desperation to, to turn it into 10 in a row. Rangers look strong at present. They've only conceded three goals all season in the, the Scottish Premier League. Celtic still have two games in hand and these you know, Scottish title races can turn around very quickly because the teams play each other four times in a season. But um, look, that ire towards Lennon is going to move on to the board if they're seen not to have uh, solved things quickly enough. Um, and I, I can understand why they're considering a strategy of 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 someone like Gordon Strachan, who knows the club and knows the league, um, who they hope can can galvanise and turn around results quickly um, to to fix the situation. But I mean, Ian, you are part of the old firm, and uh, and you talked about the uh, the paranoia over Rangers stopping Celtic from going to ten in a row. Are you are you feeling paranoid about that prospect at present? Thankfully, my paranoia dissipated long ago <laughs> about that kind of thing. Although I was covering um, the uh, Scottish Premier League when Celtic ended Rangers' um, run of nine in a row championships to prevent 10. And it, it was a, a very um, tense and intense experience uh, being involved that season because it wasn't even like each set of supporters were waiting till full time to find out the result of the other. It was literally if one of them hit the bar or or worse, scored a goal and they're all listening on the radios um, in the ground watching their team play. It felt like, you know, a death in the family because that's how important every goal could have been in order to either prevent or for Rangers to get to 10 in a row. And Walter Smith, who was the Rangers manager at that time and who uh, had a massive influence on those ten, those nine titles, uh, has often spoken to me about feeling scarred by the experience of, of failing to win 10. Um, because as a Rangers supporter, as well as the manager and a legendary manager at Ibrooks, that was a unique situation for him, a unique position for him to become, you know, Matt Busby said to Jock's team when he won the European Cup, John, you're immortal. So you know, Walter would have been immortal if he had won 10. And Lennon is staring his own mortality in the face right now because he would be the manager who lost it as well. So yeah, I, I can understand um, that people are getting very uptight about what's going on. But what I don't see is that there's any, anything positive to be taken from paranoia or panic amongst Celtic fans, a change of manager is not necessarily going to bring a change of results. From what I've seen of Celtic, and I only can watch them on TV, um, they lack confidence. They look like a, a good squad, but not a great team. And Rangers look like 
like a very good team, but not better than Celtic individually as players. And that I think that's the puzzle Lennon has to solve in terms of getting his players to play like a team again. Um, and there has been dissent in the dressing room. And, you know, as you were talking about on Wednesday's pod, Duncan, with Nicola Pepe, these are guys who are surrounded by an entourage of people and family who will always say it's not your fault. It's always someone else's fault to the players. And I get the feeling there's a, quite a few of those key Celtic players right now saying, it's not my fault, i.e. it's the manager's fault. He's not picking the right team or he's not got setting the right tactics, etc. It takes a very strong and very, very mentally uh, strong manager to be able to turn that around. And that's Lennon's challenge. Now, I do think he'll be given some time to do it. I'm not expecting him to be sacked tomorrow or next week. But that doesn't mean to say that another couple of bad results and the board may well panic and we would find ourselves in a situation um, where we will be talking about Celtic and their new manager anytime soon. Interesting what you say about Walter Smith. How much of that was the product of direct criticism from Rangers supporters when they, they lost that title to, to Wim Janssen's Celtic? It was, unfortunately for him. Those fans felt disenfranchised because I'm pretty sure been to every one of the world's greatest club derby games during my career, including Boca River in Argentina, but all of the huge European ones as well many times. But Celtic Rangers, I, people might say I'm biased because obviously I grew up as a Celtic fan, but it's still something unique because it doesn't just embody football. It's a, it's a community thing. It's a religion thing. It's a political thing as well. And therefore, the supporters don't just feel like they've lost a football match. They feel like they've lost uh, some kind of birthright when things like that go down. Hence the ire and hence the levels of frustration and anger. And unfortunately, sometimes violent responses, which we've got to be grateful that that's greatly decreased in recent years, but can still flare up. So, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those situations that it does exist and that's the reality. It's that, you know, it can't be changed um, despite there's been many campaigns by both clubs to try and change it. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't think people will necessarily blame Neil Lennon. Uh, after all, he's only been back in the job uh, since um, Brendan Rodgers left for Leicester City uh, a year ago, February, and he delivered that treble last season um, and will, you know, continue to fight on all three fronts this season. Look, you know what? I think maybe for Celtic in this particular instance, it's maybe an advantage to be out of the Europa League because it's a very energy-sapping competition mm -hmm. because you're playing Thursdays and then every game has to be then Sunday and you're travelling as well. And Rangers are still, Rangers look like they'll go through, even though they lost a two-goal lead to Benfica on Thursday night at Ibrooks, but they're still top of their group and they did a good campaign last season, the EL as well. So perhaps that will benefit Celtic, although Rangers certainly look the stronger team at the moment. So um, yeah, as I said, I think we may well find ourselves talking more about this in the coming weeks, Duncan. Do you think uh, Steven Gerrard will have to follow one of the Jurgen Klopp strategies and dump the cop competition to focus on the league at a certain point. I'm sure he's desperate to win a title, that's for sure. 
<laughs> priorities, priorities. Indeed. I mentioned Boca Juniors Duncan, and of course, uh, it's been a sad week for football with the passing of El Diego, Diego Armando Maradona, who died age 60 of a heart attack. Uh, we've all seen the tributes and the pictures from Buenos Aires of his funeral. Um, listeners to this podcast will have heard me tell many stories about my time with Diego Maradona, which I'm sure you'll be glad to know. I'm not going to repeat right now. Um, instead, uh, we have decided to dedicate this week's Donkey Award. There can be no finer honour uh, <laughs> as, as the Diego Armando Maradona Award for producing magnificent football at the same time as sensationally caning it off the pitch. Uh, I'm going to have to just open an envelope, Duncan, because I, I feel that the tears are welling up in my eyes here just thinking about caning it with Diego. <laughs> there we go, the envelope there. I mean, obviously, there's some great candidates for this one, so we've had to uh, give much thought to uh, who were, uh, the nominations are. The first one is Paul Gaza Gascoigne. Um, I could probably sit here all day, Duncan, and talk about his caning it, uh, as well as his brilliance on the pitch. But I'll leave you to give us a couple of examples of that instead when you're giving your um, judgment on this. Uh, one, George Best, uh, who, of course, was probably almost the original great caner, as well as the maverick talent uh, that befitted his role and position as potentially the best player the British Isles has ever produced. And unusually, but I think in this case, the exception is justified. We have to nominate Diego himself because, well, he's Diego. Duncan, I leave it to you to make the choice for the Donkey Diego Armando Maradona Award. I think this is the easiest one ever, um, although you've got two exceptional footballers there and two exceptional caners in uh, George Best and Paul Gascoigne. Maradona um, surpasses both of them in both domains. Uh, it has to be his award. We don't even really have to think very hard about it. Totally agree with you. Rest in peace, El Diego. Indeed. That's all for today's podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Please turn on all notifications and you'll get news of the next pod as soon as it's published. Please join the discussion with us there and at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you want to contact Duncan and I individually and you know that we will engage with you as we always do, then Duncan's at Duncan Castles and I'm at Garbo SJ. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Uh, until next week, have a good weekend. Thanks for listening. Be safe. Stay well. Yeah.